Let me read to you a portion of a proclamation given by President Abraham Lincoln in 1863, declaring April 30th as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Now, just in case your history is a little blurry, he was the president of these United States, calling us to humility, fasting, and prayer. And I would submit to you that these words could be changed from preparing for April 30th, 1863, and prayed over our nation today. Although we would never hear them prayed today, and we would hear them rebelled against, probably with civil war, we need to hear these words. It is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by a history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. Intoxicated with broken, unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. We are grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. Words to a nation, words to individuals, not just words to those who profess faith in Christ, words that represent scriptural, biblical truth, words that should be uttered by any government leader who has been placed in their position by the sovereign hand of God who appoints kings as he wills and dethrones them as he wills. But it's also that prayer for us as individuals because we appoint ourselves as king at times and need dethroned by God. That must happen before we are saved. And it's the act of repentance of a believer to the discipline of God as we live our lives when he reveals to us those areas that we have taken over the center of our world. We have taken over the authority, the wisdom, the power in our life. And we've forgotten God. We hear many times today that, well, I would say we don't hear it as much, any, as much especially after the last two years, but pre-COVID, remember there was a world before COVID. Um, Pre-COVID, you would hear on a regular basis that we can't force our Christianity on the government. Well, the government operates at the behest of the God of Christianity. So there's got to be some connection there. And we today, as a nation, 
are walking in the world we're walking in because God has given us over. I wonder if today you are walking where you're walking because God has given you over. I wonder whether today you are one who has never bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that you are your own God, the captain of your own soul. That you're not concerned about eternity because whatever happens there, maybe you've done more good than bad here, so you think it'll just be okay and peachy on that day. All through Scripture, we read about a God who is a God mighty in power and holiness, who will come against the unrighteousness of men, who also offers compassion and forgiveness when people turn to him. Offers compassion and forgiveness of sin when people turn to his son, Jesus Christ. And we don't see it just one-sided, Old Testament or New. We heard that. That's why I had Eric read the long passage. I'm so glad we're the Bible Church of Cabot so we can have 43 verses read in our worship service and not blink an eye. But we read all of it because you heard the character of God come through. This is what my people did and this is what I was going to do. But my compassion both for, for my people and the protection of my own glory so that no other nation would gloat over what I did. I have extended compassion even though my people did not deserve it. God extends compassion to us through Christ even though we don't deserve it. We need to hear that as a nation. We need to hear that as individuals. And that is in Isaiah's mind in our passage. Every oracle that we're going through, remember, he is, he is giving the oracle within the ears of the southern kingdom so that they would learn. They would learn who God was, who they were, how to trust God, how to walk away from their own sinfulness, what would happen if they didn't, what would happen if they did. And yet the, the message constantly seeps out into the nations as well. The message is to the nations that are around the southern kingdom. The message seeps out in the middle of these oracles, and we have that no more demonstrated than we do today in the oracle concerning Damascus. And so we are hearing this, not as Old Testament Jews. We are hearing this as New, New Testament people of God, New Testament people who have tasted the grace of Jesus Christ, who have had their sins forgiven who God has written the law in our heart, those who, have, who God has, has overcome our sin, who has given us, he says in his new covenant, that, that when, he, when he gives that through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel, that not only is he writing the law in our heart, but he is, he is causing us to walk in obedience to that. All glory goes to him. And yet until Christ returns, we have sin in the world, and we are all, every one of us, tempted to have our sin be the focus of our life. That we all of a sudden think, well, those scripture passages don't matter to me. They don't really count for me. I have a right to do this. But boy, you, know, you, don't, know, you don't know my kids or my friend or my husband or my wife or my father or my mother. And yet the word speaks to us. And we are those who are professing redemption, that our sins are forgiven. And so God says, this is the way you will act. Not because we act in a certain way and lift ourselves up to God as if, aren't we nice, God? Would you take me today? But because Christ has lived the perfect life and died the perfect death and we are in him and he receives Christ's perfection and we are in union with him with our sins forgiven. And you may say, are you going to get to the text, Pastor Rob? This is the heart of the text. The heart of the text is always God and how he's re represented himself in Christ 
and what the lot is of those who reject him and what the lot is of those who receive him. And in the oracle that we see in chapter 17 and 18 in Isaiah, we find this full-fledged. This is one of those oracles that if you've done your study, you're, you're waiting to hear this oracle concerning Damascus. And Damascus appears up on the scene. And before you even take your first breath, before you basically get to the first period, Damascus is gone. And we're dealing with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then this mysterious kingdom of Cush. Because God is about salvation of a people for himself. And he reveals all through this passage how he does that. Let's stand together as I read this oracle. And as I read, I want you to watch in the text for these markers that show us the, the divisions in the text. Watch for repeated words as we come through. This text is just, it hangs together beautifully and in, in, its, in its literary sense is very informative to us. But I also want you to be thinking, what do the people who love God, the people who are part of his kingdom, the people who are his, what do they look like? And what do the people who are his enemies look like? And with the question, what do I look like? Isaiah 17, an oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins the cities of Aror and are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares Yahweh of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low. And the fat of his flesh will grow lean, and it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arms harvest the ears, and as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries at the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of the fruit tree, declares Yahweh, God of Israel. In that day... Man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his, fingers, his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooden, wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branches of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in the day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, the thunder like the thundering of the, of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, Terror, 
before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Ah, and the whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea and vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look! When a trumpet is blown, hear! For thus Yahweh said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like a clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall, all of them, be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beast of the earth. And the birds of prey will, will summer on, on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to Yahweh of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide to Mount Zion, the place of the name of Yahweh of hosts. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses, we are shown five truths concerning the Yahweh of host response to the nations. Five truths concerning Yahweh of hosts response to the nations. Now in this oracle, the nations are many that are mentioned, even a wide and sweeping reference to many nations, to all of the nations in the, in the, of the earth, all the nations that are, that are being spoken to and about because God is the ruler, the creator and the ruler of all the earth. But I want you to also see that in this oracle, we, we move from Damascus to um, the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom, to the all nations to Cush and back to the nations that will bring in their tribute to the Lord after he has worked. So this is a sweeping oracle. Now some of your versions may have at the beginning of chapter 18 an insert, an editorial insert, called the ESV has this, an oracle concerning Cush. Now remember, we are taking this, this, this section of scripture and we are marking oracles where the scriptures mark the oracles. So we have, in verse 17, an oracle concerning Damascus, and we don't have that phrase again until chapter 19, an oracle concerning Egypt, which is why we're taking all of these together. This is intended for us to see, first, to hear what the southern kingdom would understand, and second, for us to understand how it applies to us. So let's dig in with this. this will, we'll move through this rather quickly as we get to our application. And I hope you saw markers in the text, an oracle concerning Damascus, and then the, the ending of verse 3 and the ending of verse 6 declares Yahweh of hosts, declares Yahweh God of Israel. The in that day of verse 4, in that day of verse 7, in that day of verse 9, 
The ah that is in verse 12 twice and the ah that begins 18.1, how it marks off this, this sectioning for us so we can see how the oracle flows right from the literary design of the text. So the first truth concerning Yahweh of hosts and his response to the nations is that Yahweh of hosts will deal with both Syria and Israel. Look there at the first uh, beginning of, the, of chapter 17. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The city of Aror are deserted. The cities, plural. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none of them will be afraid. And the fortress will disappear from Ephraim. And the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low in a continuation of that description. Now, we're being brought to a time that we've already covered in Isaiah. I want you to turn back to chapter 7. And let's just remind ourselves of this, this conflict that happens between the northern kingdom and Syria and Judah and King Ahaz, the wicked king, heading up over Judah. We're just going to read these first nine verses here to remind us of the conflict that's in mind. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, or Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told... Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And Yahweh said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub. Remember that Shear Jashub means a remnant shall return. Your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it, says Yahweh God. Thus says Yahweh God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And remember the yous in that verse are plural. It is the king and the people. If you, king and your people, are not firm in faith, if you are not firm in your trust of Yahweh, you will not be firm at all. You will not be established in that faith. So that picture of Syria and the northern kingdom trying to get the southern kingdom to join them against the great power of the day, Assyria, and King Ahaz in his sinful response, which we've already gone through all of that. We're not going to go back through all of the story, but his sinful response is to trust the king of Assyria instead of trust his God. And Isaiah in chapter 17 is reminding us that what God said would not stand did not stand. 
and will not stand. There is no enemy that comes up against God, no enemy that comes up against God's people without his permission that, go, that does anything at all of eternal significance. And God will overcome them in his time, in his way. And back in chapter 17, and this is what we're seeing at the very beginning of this oracle. He will deal with both Syria and Israel. And that first part of the verse, both of them will come to ruin. And it's used in the same kind of language that we have seen from this agrarian culture to talk about what will happen of the destruction and the devastation that will happen to Damascus, the capital of Syria. And then when it says in verse 3, the fortress will disappear from Ephraim, that's Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And you'll see this little phrase at the end of verse 3. And the remnant of Syria, okay, so that's a little bit of hope there, right? There is a remnant. Judgment and hope, judgment and hope, Isaiah, back and forth all the time. That's really an overlay of the scriptures in general, isn't it? Judgment and hope, judgment and hope, judgment and hope. There is a remnant, there is a, it's small, but there is a remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel. And if we stop there, we're a little confused. Well, how is the remnant of Syria like the glory of God's people? Well, what have we learned about the glory of God's people so far in Isaiah? The glory of God's people is their own glory oftentimes and not his, right? They, they're holding on to their own wealth, their own power, their own success. And the prophet Isaiah on behalf of God is warning them over and over and over. So we get this filled out in verse 4. In our first, in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low. Now, remember, when we started our look at Isaiah, we said sometimes the, Isaiah will use terms for the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom separately, sometimes together. And this way, Jacob is being brought in as, as Ephraim, the northern kingdom, but it also has a nod to the southern kingdom because of the way the text flows. So what will the glory of the children of Israel? Syria, will, the remnant of Syria, will be like the glory of the children of Israel. What does that look like? The glory of Jacob, there's your synonym there, will be brought low. So it is their own glory that God will humble because their glory is not God himself. It is their own glory. It is their own wealth, their own riches, their own trust. It's why King Ahaz, as a representative of his people, doesn't trust God. He trusts his own wisdom and the power of Assyria as if Assyria did anything without God whistling for them to come and do his bidding. So we see in verse 4, as verse 4 begins, we see there will... Both of these nations will come to ruin, and both Syria and Israel will be left a remnant. And look how the rest of it in, in verse 5 is described. The end of verse 4, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. In other words, he may be self-sufficient. The fat being the idea of blessing and satisfaction, that will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, verse 6, gleaning in the field. So we have two um, agricultural pictures here. The one picture of the gleaning in the field. You know that story from Ruth in the, in the, in the Old Testament where they were, the people were commanded to, to take out of their fields, yes, but to leave part of what was in their fields along the edges. They would fill up their arms, but they would drop some along the way, and they weren't to pick those up. Those were for the poorer people, but they would not just a small portion of the crop. 
And the same thing, the next metaphor that's used of, of a vineyard where the, the vine would be, would be um, shaken or maybe an olive tree where it's shaken and fruit is left at the top and fruit that's not quite ripe yet and a little bit of fruit at the bottom, the rest of it comes down. They, they put the, the cloth on the bottom and shake the tree until all the ripe fruit falls and then they, so, they seal up that, that big cloth or that big cape and they take it away. Just a little bit left on the tree. Just a little bit left in the field is the way it's being described. So Yahweh of hosts will deal with both Syria and Israel. And you see, Damascus is already taking a back seat. But the second truth concerning Yahweh's of hosts' response to the nations, we find in verse 7 and 8, those who trust and obey the Holy One of Israel will make up the remnant. Verse 7, our second in that day statement, bringing us this, this next section. In that day, man will, notice the looks, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. So here... We even have it go wider yet. Here we see this universal call to the nations. In that day, man, not Syria, not Israel, not Judah, not God's people, but this generic term of man, a description of those who come to Yahweh and look to him and trust in him. We've seen these people brought in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 already where the nations come seeking the knowledge of Yahweh, seeking what Yahweh would teach them about life. And here we have that same call again. This is a description of what the remnant will look like. There may be few, but they are powerful. Why are they powerful? Because the glory of God is their glory. It's not their glory that needs to be brought low because their glory is the glory of God. Why? Because they look to their maker. They look to their creator. Their eyes look on the Holy One of Israel. Now remember, the Holy One of Israel, that wonderful phrase that's used so many times in Isaiah that we, that we saw probably in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 where, his, where he is called, where he sees the Holy One, the Holy One, the, tr- the thrice Holy God, and it overwhelms him. It affects him. It affects his theology. It affects his language where now this is the Holy One of Israel. We also saw in when we looked at chapter 6, the Holy One of Israel is also referring to Jesus Christ. Right there in chapter 6, we saw that it was not just God the Father, it was God the Son being brought there as, it, as those passages are quoted in the New Testament. So their eyes are fixed on their creator, their maker. Their eyes are fixed on the Holy One of Israel. And it's important to see where our eyes are fixed because it's hard to fix our eyes two different opposite directions, isn't it? It's hard to have our eyes over that way and over that way. Unless you're a mom with kids, all right, you can do that, right? If you're a mom with kids, you know you can see behind you and around you and beside you, and you catch them at everything. I know that. But spiritually, you're a one-vision guy. You're a one-vision woman. You can only look to Christ or you look to the world, to Christ or to yourself. And that's what's being brought to us here. Those that are part of the remnant will do this, and they will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. So there is a change that's happened here, right? The language is that they used to do that, but they're not doing that anymore. They're not looking to the work of their hands. Now this, we might say, well, that's all the pagan nations. That's all, that's all the pagan worship practices, the worship practices of Baal that we see all over, the, the Asherim, that, the, that, 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 that look, the, a 
the, the wooden poles that were to the fertility goddess, Asherah, right? Asherim being plural of that. The wooden poles that they would create, sometimes trees that they would set aside and they would worship to worship these fertility gods and the altars of incense that would go around them. And yet that's exactly what Ahaz did on behalf of his people. He set up the same kind of worship. That's exactly what God's people did over and over and over when they went toward the gods that they were not supposed to go to and they worshiped like those nations did, which is expressly what God said, do not do when I send you into your land. And yet God's people still did that. So they have turned from that. So it's what they do and it's what they don't do. It's what their eyes are fixed on and where their eyes are not fixed. And I want to just draw your attention to the work of his hands. And he will not look on what his own fingers have made. Now that's dealing with idolatry in the sense of making idols and putting them up. But as many times as we've talked of idolatry, I know your hearts and minds are going to your own idolatry. Where you, not be, you may not be crafting things, uh, pieces of wood or metal to worship, but you are crafting your own glory in your life. You're crafting trust in your own um, work in your life. And it doesn't matter what that is. That could be everything from your finances to your job to your retirement to your family to all, any other wealth that you have to your wisdom to anything at all that that's where your trust is. And if God takes that away, you're helpless. Because your ultimate gaze is not fixed on Christ, it's fixed on those things. And can I just tell you something? If you're a believer here, and that's the way your eyes are fixed more than they're fixed on Christ, and you're professing Christ, God's going to take that away. Because if you're a true believer, he's going to discipline you, and that discipline is going to give you over to those things, and then take them away, and then he's still going to be there for you, because you cannot lose your salvation, can you? This is the way he works to discipline us because we are still fighting sin in this life. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But just think of what the, the nation of Judah is hearing. They're hearing that these nations that King Ahaz wanted to go, um, uh, avoid partnership with them and go to Assyria and trust them instead. And God said they will not stand. God is reminding the southern kingdom, I told you they would not stand. I told you that I'm in charge of the nations. So you, southern kingdom, you, Judah, trust me. That's the underlying message for the hearers of this message of this oracle. The third of five truths concerning Yahweh of hosts and his response to the nations, those who forget God will be destroyed. Look at verse 9. Our third in that day, kind of dividing up this, the responses. There's a remnant who is part of the remnant, who is not part of the remnant, and now we have the third in that day dealing with those who are strong in their own might. In that day, the strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For, so there we begin a list of, of whys, but verse 9 is saying, you may be a strong city, but you're going to be like the deserted ones. You're going to be like those cities which they deserted because the children of Israel and there will be desolation. When the children of Israel took the, the promised land and they would overcome their enemies because God gave them their enemies and they were in desolation. You, you may think you're strong, but you're going to look like that. Why? Verse 10. For you, and here we have the you shifting to singular. 
Hmm, why is that? Is he still talking about all the nations or is he honing in now on his audience? Is he honing in now on Judah, the southern kingdom? Yes, it's true of all the nations, but now he's honing in with the application. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. What a condemning statement toward his people. They have forgotten God. Now, this is... This is something that is constant in the Old Testament, is it not? We just had, uh, had the long passage from Deuteronomy 32 read to us so that the people of God would not forget what God had done. The people of God, of God would not forget what he did in their deliverance. He would not forget what he did when they were disobedient. They would not forget that he is the God of the covenant and he will honor that covenant and act accordingly. But you, he says, have forgotten You have not remembered. See how the parallelism is showing? Forgotten, not remembered. The God of your salvation, the rock of your refuge. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We can look at many passages on forgetting God, but I'm just going to take you to one. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 11, and we'll go through, chapter, through verse 20. Take care lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. So right there, don't forget Yahweh. And how do you, how do you remember him? You keep his rules and statutes and laws. How do you forget him? You don't keep those. See how simple this is? God speaks, we obey, because we're his people. It's what we want to do. It's what our heart is deigned to do, and we crucify our own sin so that that becomes everything that we do. And if we're not obeying him, we are forgetting him. You see how quickly in this passage we're we're told what it means to forget God? Verse 12, lest... When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses to live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Now, who did the multiplication? Did they do it? God is the one who orchestrated for them with the work of their hands, faithful, obedient, tilling and farming and production, but God is the one who gave it to them. Then your heart... Be lifted up and you forget Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you hear the remembrance? Out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget Yahweh your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Remembering God is obeying God. 
Forgetting God is disobeying God and obeying your own whims and desires and wisdom and wants. You turn back to Isaiah. I'm going to read to you Psalm 106, just a few verses. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who has done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. It's a constant teaching of Scripture. Remember what God has done. Remember how he honors the government, his covenant. Remember the obedience and disobedience of your forefathers before, and you remember God by obeying him. That's what's being said that is not being done in the southern kingdom in Isaiah 17. Verse 9. He talks about the rock of their refuge. How many times do we see? We, we heard it four different times in Deuteronomy 32 this morning. It's 19 or 20 times in the Psalms where the, 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 the psalmist talks about God being their rock. Passages like, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. For who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Or Psalm 32, or Psalm 31. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. And one more, Psalm 62, 7. On God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. He is our rock and our refuge. It's a vivid picture for us, is it not? A rock above the, the war in the valley. A, a rock above and out of the storming waters. A rock that our feet are planted on as we've been taking out of the miry depth and planted on the rock. This is the picture of God. He is sure. He is steady. He does not move. He does not shift. He does not change. And he is the rock of our salvation. He is our refuge. Nowhere else can we take that refuge our identity is nowhere else but God himself. Our security is nowhere else but God himself. Our, our wants, our desires, our satisfaction, everything is in God himself and nothing can take that place. Otherwise, we begin worshiping his gifts instead of the giver of the gifts. It's so constant of a theme that we could sit here for the next 24 hours and read passages that give us this same passage, uh, the same, same thought over and over and over. So these little verses that tell us in chapter 17, verse 10, you have forgotten God of your salvation and you have not remembered the rock of your refuge, that's pregnant with the theology of scripture. God has redeemed us. We owe him our life. He's given us the ability to obey him and thus we should. It brings him glory. Look at verse 11. Well, verse 10, halfway through verse 10. Therefore, since you've forgotten, since you've not remembered God and the salvation he's brought you, God and the refuge you have in him, therefore, 
Though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in the day of grief and incurable pain. Another imagery from agriculture saying, no matter what you do, God is in charge of this. And if you want the blessings of God, you worship the God of the blessings, not the blessings. If you want the strength of God, you depend on the strength of the God of all strength, not your own strength. Why would we depend on our own strength when God has all the power in the universe? It's nonsensical, and yet we do it all the time. Well, the fourth of five truths concerning Yahweh of hosts and his response to the nations. The entire world is under God's judgment. What I've tried to do here is take these two awe statements because we've moved from the world and who would be a part of God's people and who wouldn't. And we've moved back into the southern kingdom directly applied to them. It's true for them, but it's also true for you. And you have done this. And now he moves back to the power of the nations, the nations they might be tempted to be fearful of, the nations they might be tempted to make alliances with. And look at this this, um, repetitive picture of what we have in verse 12. Thunder, thunder, thundering, roar, roar, roaring, roar, roaring. This is a blustering group of nations with lots of armies and lots of power. And if you've ever stood by, by roaring waters of the Niagara Falls or, or a, a, a big fall like that, the, the noise and the power is almost overwhelming. Overwhelming. It can make your inside shake. If you stand, I, I remember standing on the floor of, of the, uh, the stadium in San Francisco, the, ba- the old baseball stadium in San Francisco. I was in the Navy band and we were standing out doing the all-star game, and we were to play America the Beautiful. And after Huey Lewis and the News, yes, that is a group that used to exist a long time ago, showing my age, but after they sang the national anthem and then we played America the Beautiful, the roar of the crowd, full stadium, the roar of that crowd, my inside shook. My heart started pounding more just from the roar of 40 or 50,000 people. Imagine the roar of powerful armies coming off the horizon and what that might do to you. The thunder, the thunder of the sea, the roar of the nations like the roaring of mighty waters, the nations roaring like mighty many waters. But, we don't have but God, but we have he and the he means God, right? Those great words in scripture. There is a reality that we're living in, but God is in charge of that reality and what comes next. There is a reality, but God. And if we can't hang on to those words, then we don't know the God that we're worshiping because we can always say, whatever I'm looking at, but God. He's got a plan. And if those roaring armies overtake thee, so be it. But in this case, what is the promise? But he, the second line of verse 13, will rebuke them and they will flee away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. They're going to be nothing. If you'd walk up to a fire that is already out and has been out for a while and go, and that dust blows up in the air, that's what these roaring, thundering nations will do at the word of the Lord. At evening time, behold, there's terror. Before morning, they are no more. There is a portion of those who loot us 
You see Isaiah speaking for his people again? This could happen to you. There is a portion of those who loot us and the lot, this is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. This is what will happen to those who are God's enemies. If we keep our trust in God, in Yahweh, in the God who has redeemed us, in our rock, if we keep our trust in him, then this is the portion, this is the lot of those who plunder us. And it's so quick. There's terror in the evening and by morning they are no more. And for God's people, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. So this, and this is the picture that if we had time, we would go where we're heading into chapter 36 and 37 Isaiah and see that this is exactly what happens to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, when Hezekiah does what's right instead of what his father did to what was wrong. Hezekiah trusts in the Lord, and it happens that quick with 180,000 Assyrians that die. They retreat, and the king dies right after that. In the evening, terror, but in the morning, it's over with. That's the God we serve, and he is in covenant with his people to do just that. Well, this section continues. The ah that starts um, verse 12 also starts 18.1. Some of your versions might say, whoa. It's not really bringing a lament here. It's marking us out as, as kind of like a, look at this. And, and there is a, ah, you think about this, but... You think about this, but, and both of them have the same format. There are mighty armies, but God will do what he will do, and the end is sure in him. So this is the second section of that, that we keep under this idea that God, that, that God, that the entire world is under God's judgment. The nations thunder and roar, but God will summon and destroy them easily and quickly. So we've seen the first example of this at the end of 17. Now look at 18. Ah, and the land, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. So this is, the Bible calls this nation Ethiopia. It's not the same. I don't think it's the same as the Ethiopia that we have now. It's north of that and more in the Sudan area. But the Bible calls this Ethiopia, the land of Cush. And, and it, it, in many ways, it is considered the ends of the earth. It's, it's south of Egypt, and, and in this day, what we see happening in this area is this land of Cush, the, the land Nubia, this land is, is over, even overtaking, the rulers are even overtaking Egypt at this point. And that's kind of the historical setting. It's the region, let me just read you this. Cush is a region south of Egypt, also known in Scripture as Ethiopia, but not modern Ethiopia, known in ancient times as the end of the world. In 732, the Nubian, a Nubian ruler, um, Pianki, began to overtake the northern area of Egypt and begins the Kushite dominance of the whole region. The Kushite 25th dynasty began when Pianki's successor, the one who follows him, Shabaka, comes to power in 716, maybe 715, and reigns over Egypt. So this is a growing power, a power that is feared, a power that has, has armies, a power that is known for also the, the sailing of their papyrus ships and the Kushites and the Nubian army. So look back at our text in chapter 18. The land of worry, worrying wings... Now, that could be the insects that are uh, the, the tsetse flies that are all up and down the Nile. 
It could be the army, the sound of the army. I think given the context, it's probably the sails of the papyrus boats. Either way, it's giving their announcement of their arrival in numbers and in power. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. And yes, they did make boats out of papyrus reeds during this time. They weren't gigantic. They might not have been able to sail on the Mediterranean, but they could sail up and down the rivers. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation, tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide. Now, there's a bunch of disagreement on who's the ambassador and where they're going. And the message isn't really given what they're, what they're to say. But I think this is Cushites, uh, Ethiopians, the Nubians, rising up and giving a me- they're being sent out with a message to all of the expanding nation as they've conquered Egypt and all of this area. So they're basically rising up with a message to all these armies to call them together. That's what's being pictured here. Another picture of strong and mighty armies, but this one, this one has a different ending. Look at verse 3. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth. You see how we've expanded again? I mean, we're, we're like looking through a telescope, and we're turning and turning. We're backing in, and we're backing out. We're, backing, we're going in on a nation. We're backing out to the world because God is encouraging his people that he is the ruler over every world, over every nation, all throughout the world, and none are more powerful than him. And you say, haven't you already said that, Pastor Rob, a bunch? Does the scripture say it again and again and again? Do you and I need to hear it again and again and again that God is sovereign? There is no almost sovereign or sovereign over this. You is either sovereign or you ain't. Go home and put that on your grammar sheets for your kids to correct. So we're back to the world, verse 3. When a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus Yahweh said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. So God is watching. Things might be advancing, and you might think God is not watching. He's not in control, but he's always watching. He's always in control. So they're giving the signal. We've already talked about what a signal is earlier in, in the book of Isaiah as nations were called and God whistles for Assyria and he whistles for Egypt and the fly comes. And we've already talked about all of that language. It's present here. For, verse 5, before the harvest, here we have the same format that we had before about the harvest. You have worked it, but God will overcome it. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he, so it's time to harvest at this point. He, that is God, cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. So just like the chaff that's blown away, Now we have the imagery of a field ready to harvest. And God says, I don't care what you've done. I'm in charge and you will worship me. They shall all of them be left, verse 6, to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beast of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and the beast of the earth will winter on them. This is devastation again. However, I mean, you just picture, just 
picture an old western and all the dust is, is up in the air and all of a sudden the cavalry comes riding through the dust. You didn't know they were there. You didn't even hear them coming, but all of a sudden, poof, out of the dust they come and they're there to the rescue. This is the way God is. He may not seem like he's working in a situation, but he is there and he is always working and things change here in verse 7. Because the fifth truth concerning Yahweh of hosts' response to the nations is the remnant from all nations will come to Zion to worship Yahweh of hosts. Look at verse 7. At that time, tribute will be brought to Yahweh of hosts. And then we see the same description of the people from the land of Cush, the Nubians, the Ethiopians, from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Where are they bringing the tribute? To Mount Zion, the place of the name of Yahweh of hosts. This is where Yahweh resides. So they're not only the messengers, but they were, they're the ones who come with their own tribute. And this throughout Scripture is pictured as those who are bowing their knee to God. They're bowing their knee to Yahweh. In Psalm 68, 29, we read, Because of your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bear gifts to you. Who are the kings? They're the Gentile kings. They're the kings of the nations. Psalm 76, 11, Make your vows to Yahweh, your God, and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. And a very interesting verse, two verses in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of Yahweh and serve him with one accord. Listen, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering." So even in Zephaniah, we have the promise that the, 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 the Cushites are coming, the Ethiopians are coming with gifts to the Lord, and God is continually blessing them because they come and they bring gifts, and God says, I am your God, because they have bowed their knee. And you can't help but think about Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It, can, it carries right on through to the New Testament. You remember that story where Philip, God tells him, the Holy Spirit says, go. And he picks up and he goes to the south on a certain road and he sees an Ethiopian eunuch. And that eunuch is the head of the treasury of all of Ethiopia, the queen of Ethiopia, Candace. And the Holy Spirit says, go over to that, which would not have been normal, go over to that chariot. And that Ethiopian eunuch is reading out of Isaiah 53. And as they would have done at the time, he's reading out loud these verses. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. He was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And when Philip heard him, he asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch replied, How can I understand unless someone guides me? And the eunuch says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. The Ethiopian blessing continues even to the New Testament. 
And we see in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation chapter 21, this is what will happen there as well, isn't it? This is what happens. All of the nations will bring their gifts, their tribute to the new heaven and new earth. They will come into the new earth and they will give it to God. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever into it, enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation, God will redeem people for himself. And in the new earth, they will bring that tribute into him and they will not be shut out because they are the righteous ones. Their robes have been washed in the blood of the lamb. This is the picture of scripture. This is what we have entered into in our salvation. This is what we who claim Jesus as our rock and our redeemer, we have entered into that long history of God redeeming people for himself by his own power, for his own glory, to accomplish his own plan. And he's doing it all by advancing things in Jesus Christ. So today, I ask you, what will it be today? We've talked about this rock. Yahweh is the rock. Jesus is the rock. Will you remember the rock of your salvation? Or will you forget him? Will you turn to him in repentance and faith, if for the first time? Or will you ignore him and not remember him? If you're here in Christ this morning, are you walking away from him? Are you ignoring his commandments? Are they right in front of you when you say no? Because if you are, you're forgetting God. According to the authority of the text, you're forgetting God. We've already learned about this rock from Isaiah chapter 8, which says, Do not fear what they fear or be in dread, but Yahweh of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. And this is from the same section that we just read from about Ahaz and this situation that he was in. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Peter applies this verse from Isaiah two times in his first letter. In 2.14, which we'll look at in a moment, but also in chapter 3.15, where he writes, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the same passage in Isaiah 8, where Isaiah is telling us to honor Yahweh, Peter says, Yahweh is also Jesus, and you need to honor him in your heart as holy. So I think it's been clear this morning that the gospel that I'm presenting is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That you, you and I at one time were all sinners walking away from him, enemies of his. Some of you in this room may still be here. Some of you may be in families who teach you about the gospel every single day, but you yourself, young one, have never accepted Christ. You have never put your faith and trust in him and repented of your sins. This is the call to do that. The call to do that for all of us is to trust Christ and not in ourselves. And he has promised that if we repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in him, that he will forgive us our sins. 
and that our eternity is secure, our inheritance is secure. This is the Jesus that we hold out to you this morning. And so what will he be to you? Will he be a rock of salvation and a refuge or a rock of stumbling? What happens if you don't honor Christ and you reject him? He will become that rock of offense. In Romans chapter 9, verse 32, Paul explains why the Jews who pursued righteousness through the law failed to attain it when he writes this. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it, for as it is written, quoting from Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I am laying a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All throughout the scripture, this God is either a rock of stumbling or a rock of salvation to you. And for the Jews in Paul's day, it was the same thing. They tried to have their own works equal their salvation. Remember, it's all about Christ. Old Testament, New Testament saints. Christ is the only way to salvation. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And we know that from verses like 1 Corinthians, let alone every chapter we come to in Isaiah, which tells us God's redeeming people from the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that, that followed them and that rock was Christ. Christ is the Redeemer. Old Covenant saints, New Covenant saints, so the choice before you today is life or death. Trust in Christ as the rock of your refuge or stumble over him as the stumbling stone by trusting yourself. And I'm going to say one more time, do not think that because you were professing Christ here that you were beyond this warning. Do not think that. If you are professing for him to be your rock of salvation, your rock of refuge, then you are pursuing him. Not perfectly, but when you sin, you repent. Not perfectly, but you restore things. That's what we do as believers. If we're not, then this warning may be more than just a warning to repent under the discipline of God. So I don't want to stand here and let anyone think that because you profess Christ, that this is not a warning for you. If you were not remembering him, if you were forgetting him, as the scriptures have made clear, by not obeying his commandments. Turn to 1 Peter 2. And here's where we'll stop. I won't have much to say, if anything, about it. This ties it up for us. 1 Peter 2. In fact, let's just stand. Because I need to be finished. Let's stand and we'll read this and then we'll sing to close. This sums up everything for us. Everything we've been learning today, it puts it in the language that we've learned today and it helps us to see as new covenant believers our role. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your blessings. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the attentiveness of your people. For we love your word because it reveals you to us. It reveals Christ to us. And it is our desire this morning, Father, that we would hear you. Hear you in our heart and hear you in our head, but have all of that cause us to love you more, to obey you more. For you tell us that if we love you, we will obey you and we will be walking in the midst of your blessing, even in the midst of a nation that would ignore such a call to repentance as was given to our nation 160 years ago. So, Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We are grateful, Lord, that we can find the same truths throughout your word because this is how you teach us in repetition and remembrance. So help us to be a people who is faithful. Help us to be a people who loves you, who trumpets your grace and trumpets your mercy even as we live in light of it. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.